Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $142 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary climate objectives and our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm happy to welcome a new guest to the booth this month, my colleague, Dimitri Kaiken, a portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Large Cap Value Strategy. Dimitri is one of our leading investors in media companies, and given the accelerated pace of M&A activity among programmers and distributors, and the affinity viewers have for cable-only shows like Game of Thrones, myself included, we'd like to get his help in sorting out all the trends in the industry and how they inform this investment approach. And the topic of today's podcast is media trends. Is content still king? We'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. You can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Dimitri, welcome to the booth. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I know if anybody talks Game of Thrones, it's about a 30-minute conversation that they can't get out of. Are you a throner? Have you watched the program at all? I'm not a throner, but my wife just got hooked after the show. A last episode aired a couple of months ago. She read the first number of books, and she's been binge-watching ever since. From what I understand, the books and the, the series, they diverge at some point, but... I don't think she reached that point yet. Good. Well, I'm just going to say it was very disappointing, the ending to me personally, but I don't want to you know give away all the secrets to the people that are listening, but if you haven't watched it, I would recommend you getting involved. When I get about 100 hours of free time, <laughs> I'll do that. Yes, it is a quite a time commitment. But Dimitri, I know, I know you've been in the industry for quite some time. You started off as Gabelli and Solomon as a media and telecom analyst, so you're very familiar with this space. Would it be a fair comment to say that media looks nothing like it did 15 years ago? Like, this is not your grandfather's media? It's a fair, fair observation. Media has changed and continued to change pretty dramatically, but it's not that different from a lot of other industries. Technology has changed in uh, pretty much anything from consumer staples to energy space to industrials, and media is smack in the middle of it. You mentioned technologies. In my opinion, it's really blurred the lines between content, distribution, and internet. And a lot of your traditional media players are trying to gain scale through both vertical consolidation and then also horizontal consolidation. Maybe a, a vertical integration was Comcast and NBC a couple of years ago, but also from a horizontal standpoint, Disney and Fox recently had a consolidation that was upwards of $70 billion. So I know large cap value holds several of these names. As a quality-focused value manager, what's your strategy here? Are you looking for the acquirer, the acquiree, or do you, do you look at it completely differently? We generally don't look at a company thinking that it's either going to be acquirer or acquiree. What we look for is a high-quality franchise and consistent and predictable cash flows. And that's what we buy as value investor. Then we try to buy them at reasonable valuation. So the reason we've been attracted to the media space, and media is broadly defined whether it's a content company like Time Warner and Fox, which have been long-term holding of ours in size, or distribution companies like Time Warner Cable, Charter, or Comcast more recently. What we like about those businesses, despite of all the changes that are taking place with technology and court cutting, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point, is that there is a predictability of revenue and cash flows to a very high level, and, and, the, and the cash flow conversion le uh, level is pretty high for those businesses. So we like those companies. So maybe spend a few minutes talking about how 
why we like what we like and why we own those companies, if that would be helpful as a background. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can kick it off with Comcast. I know it's a relatively new addition to the portfolio, but it's quickly made its way up into the, the top 10. Has the deal with Sky kind of changed the economics of, of Comcast? So it, it's a good question. We uh, historically have been a observers and admirers of Comcast. And I think uh, despite of periods when, you know, the Roberts family has made acquisitions and the stock didn't necessarily treat it, uh, you know, with a lot of respect, I think management has done a terrific job growing the business and growing the cash flows. We, because of our ownership of Time Warner, which we received Time Warner Cable as a result of spinoff, we've had predisposition to Time Warner Cable. It's been a little bit faster growing company, ultimately ended up being a takeout. Comcast, as a matter of fact, tried to buy it. It was stopped by regulators several years ago by Charter bought it, so we own Charter. The reason we got involved with Comcast more recently is last year when Comcast got in the bidding situation with Disney, right. bidding for Fox, and we should talk about why Comcast of Disney was uh, trying to bid for Fox. Stock got you know, decimated, uh, stock price got decimated, and it was trading at a, you know, kind of 10, 11 times real earnings. I'm not talking about sales multiple like some tech companies are trading at or some other adjusted metrics like real, real or, free cash flow, real earnings and free cash flow with a very good balance sheet. And even though there was uncertainty as to whether or how much Comcast decides to pay for Fox or Sky, we felt that management being good stewards of capital would not make, you know, silly capital allocation decisions. So we got involved in in this in the spring of last year and added to the position throughout last eighteen months, and it's now top ten position for us. Yeah, obviously that gives them the global reach that they they previously didn't have. Correct. You want to talk a little bit about the other large positions you've had in the portfolio? We've we've talked about a new position with Comcast. Yeah. Maybe talk about Fox. Right. So Fox, similar to Time Warner, is a collection of assets that has sort of marquee brands, right? Fox News, whether you are on the left or the right of political spectrum, it does have a very loyal following. And it's a, just a cash flow juggernaut that generates, you know, and nobody wants to drop Fox because from distribution standpoint, because the, it has the packages. the packages. So whether you're talking about the YouTube package or you're talking about Sony viewers link foxes and Fox channels are in every package. Fox also has a very strong presence in sports. They launched Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. Prior to Disney acquisition, they also owned 21 regional sports networks. Oh, wow. So it was a very eclectic, but very interesting and powerful franchise that because of Murdoch's sort of affiliation, so to speak, it never really got the, the, the value, the stock never really got the value that it deserved until recently when Disney decided to buy it. Right. And so, and, and now the, the core business is still, you know, in your opinion, undervalued, could re-rate higher. So what happened was Disney bought the basically general entertainment assets of Fox, which also included the original sports networks, which they had to divest. A lot of the movies, the TV shows. Yeah, basically right. they bought 21st Century Fox, movie studio, TV and, and movie production studios, animation studios, as well as a couple of cable networks. Fox was producing Marvel shows, which was one of the reasons Disney wanted to bring that all back in-house. And sell it all. Consolidate all the roof. characters under one roof. And Fox also had a pretty strong global presence through ownership of Sky, which even though Disney didn't get it, but it was still there. And Star TV in India, which is a very vast and fastly growing 
basically video market. Well, I think I think India has 1.4 billion people. I think that's the largest country. So that's a, a lot of eyeballs that they could Correct. potentially monetize down that's the road. Right. The good thing for Disney is that Disney characters you know, travel sort of well globally, whether we're talking about Star Wars or Marvel, those really are sort of iconic brands and, and really global brands. You mentioned Disney. You know, we, we, I'm going to bring back Game of Thrones because I cannot get enough talking about this program. As you can see, it's a little bit of an obsession. But I watched that through HBO Go, which was their app, their streaming service. And that was one of the key reasons why Netflix decided to go into TV shows and yep. and, uh, and streaming. So with Disney, uh, they recently announced Disney Plus, which is a similar OTT subscription video and demand service. And if you're not familiar with the acronym OTT, for those that are listening, it's over the top. And I think you might hear that a couple of times here. But it's set to launch in November of this year. Do you think Disney Plus will be a game changer for them? And are we going to be flooded with similar launches from other providers? So I think Brian Robert mentioned that these whole virtu virtual MVPD or multi-video uh, providers, or OTT, as you mentioned them, it's sort of a wild west of the cable industry back in the 70s or 80s. A lot of companies are trying different formats, different packages, and things. There were you know hundreds of different little cable companies at, back in the days. They all consolidated. John Malone, who we have a lot of respect for, you know, Cable Cowboy <laughs> back in the days. Consolidated. What, a, what a nickname, by the way, Cable Cowboy. Cable Cowboy. I love it. Right. The largest landowner in the country, I believe. So there's going to be a shakeout. But the, uh, to, to your point of Disney+, Plus, look, I mean, the industry is going through pretty meaningful change. Bob Iger has made a number of acquisitions over the last, call it, five, 10 years. And if you think about the pattern of all those acquisitions, he was buying brands. It started with Pixar. He bought Marvel. He bought Lucasfilm, and combined with the existing Disney set of characters, he basically has its hands on the tentpole kind of opportunities, whether it's movies, whether it's rides for the Disney park. And those brands and characters sort of travel global, as I mentioned earlier. So if anybody can pull it off, it would make sense for Disney to be able to do it. But to put things in perspective, Disney had an analyst day a couple of months ago. They laid out the game plan for Disney Plus, ESPN Plus. They're talking about 60 to 90 million subscribers for Disney Plus. That's a huge That's number. That's a huge number. How, how many does Netflix have? I think Netflix has maybe 100 million in the U.S. Netflix has 100 million customers in the U.S. Uh, and about 60 million outside of U.S. That's pretty large scale over a short it is period a large of time. Scale, yes. And they are doing it pretty aggressively in terms of pricing. They're pricing it at, you know, $7. ESPN Plus, interestingly enough, is only targeting about 10 million customers. And I think they already have about two. Do you, do you know the price point for that by a chance? I think it's not that different from Disney Plus. Okay. It's probably six or $7 also. And we can talk about why the aspirational goals are so different for Disney versus ESPN at some point. But, you know, in the process of rolling out Disney Plus globally to 60 to 90 million subscribers, Disney is going to have to assimilate effectively or consume, go through, you know, roughly $10 billion of operating losses. And very few companies can afford to do that. That's the market cap of a vast majority of the universe alone right there. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, obviously brings us into the role of content, right? 
Comcast is going to have Flex coming out here shortly. AT&T is planning their own streaming service. Yet both of these and Disney currently have content licensed to Netflix. And I think if you would ask Disney four years ago whether it was a mistake licensing their content to Netflix, they would say, yes, it probably was. They didn't view Netflix as a competitor, but rather as another distribution arm. But are we going to see places like Disney pull their content from Netflix? Are we going to see Comcast you know, content come back to their home network? How do you see that evolving? And do you think that there's going to be a, a battle of these content portfolios? It's interesting that, you know, with the benefit of covering this industry for a long period of time, you go through these periods when content is king, distribution is king, and it's in reality, it's probably something in the middle. It's never black and white. So this is nothing new. Oh, it's nothing. It's, in, it's uh, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I think this is, it's yet another iteration. Good content has a lot of value, right? And that's why, you know, whenever you see a movie studio, a library being sold, it's sold at pretty healthy multiples because... People like to watch, you know, movies over and over again, you know, Looney Tunes. I mean, you know, CBS used to talk about uh, I Love Lucy, right? I mean, this is probably 30 years after it stopped airing. People are still watching it. So content has a lot of value and it's sort of like an annuity-like stream. If you think about a current sort of landscape, it's a really golden age period for professionally generated content. There is roughly 500 professionally produced original TV shows being made this year across all the media sort of plays, whether it's Netflix, Warner Brothers, Fox, Disney, and so on. So a lot of independent people like Lionsgate, everybody wants to be in the content business. So content is good. If you are a star in Hollywood, if you're a producer in Hollywood, content is a good, uh, it's a good thing to be in. <laughs> are we potentially at peak content, if that's even a, a term? People have called peak content for a number of years. I think we sort of plateaued. I'm not going to sit here and predict peak or, 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 or decline, but it's certainly, I think at some point, people realize that as glamorous as content is, it's not an easy business and not every show is going to succeed. And I think a point worth mentioning is that Netflix, if you think about Netflix 10 years ago, Netflix started the business by buying off true and proven shows that have done well on broadcast and cable network. Like Breaking Bad, for example. Exactly. Yeah. It knew it, it's done phenomenally well on ABC. It knew the Netflix management knew that it had uh, good following and it resonated with a broad range of consumer. And therefore, it came in and said, We're going to buy and pay you X and we're going to take this content globally. And they're the only ones who can really do that. And I think it's a relatively low-risk proposition for Netflix because you buy something that's already proven to be popular. Right. If you look at Netflix now, they spend about $10 billion on, on content. That is a ton of money. It's a ton of money. It's a ton of money. It's a big number, which is a lot of zeros. <laughs> half of it, roughly, half of it is produced for new shows, originals, Netflix originals, and half of it, they're still buying you know, syndication basically off of the major studios, whether it's Disney or movies or Warner Brothers, you know, Friends and so on and so, so forth. So so they're migrating from this sort of a sure, known quality, 
in-demand content to something that is going to be inevitably hit or miss, just like it is for the rest of Hollywood. And it's a little bit risky business, but they have to do it because, as you correctly pointed out, major movie studios or content owners are, are pulling in their content in-house as they're all trying to figure out what they're going to do going forward and how they're going to reach out. How to monetize their assets. Exactly. Yeah, uh, out of the top 10 shows that are currently watched on Netflix, eight of them are currently by competitors. Right, Um, owned by competitors, correct. Yeah, but is is there like a, you know, an economy is a scale that you need? I I read something that you need 20 to 30 million subscribers in order to make the math, quote-unquote, work for a lot of these streaming providers. So do do you feel like Netflix will still be able to buy that content over the next five to 10 years? Well, I guess it depends on, you can probably do back of the envelope and say, you know, an episode cost, cost, you know, 3 million or whatever the number is, 5 million to produce, depending on what the show is. And you have to have participation of the talent of certain percentage and you're going to do so many episodes and therefore you need a certain number of scale with some kind of contribution margin. I haven't done that math, but look, scale matters, right? That's why, you know, we started this conversation about technology change in the industry and various vertical and and horizontal consolidation taking place. Scale matters, right? Netflix has something that other players don't in terms of global scale with 160 million customers. But if you think about the, you know, the Disney's and the Comcast of the world, Disney is spending, I believe, 24 $4 billion on content pro forma for Fox acquisition. That includes ESPN, but it's still a very large number. And and Comcast with Sky spending about $22 billion, of which probably 5 or $6 billion is sports. So they are all very scaled. Big and number. Low, big numbers, big balance sheet. And that's what, you know, to Rupert Murdoch's credit, he realized early on that this is a game of big boys. And even though Fox was a big boy in a way, in the old world of media, when it comes to competing against the Netflix, the Googles, and the Amazons of the world that have huge balance sheets that are not necessarily valued on the same metrics that traditional media is valued at, it's really all about game a game of scale. And that's why they tried to buy Time Warner. Buca said, no, thank you very much. I don't like dual share class structure. Buca ended up you know, cleaning up the company and selling it to AT&T because that's all about scale. And Fox sold to Disney, as we covered already. Well, you know, so you're talking about scale, this first mover advantage, these network effects that a lot of these income, these already established companies already have. But from a value manager's perspective, you know, obviously you want to look at free cash flow. Correct. Um, you know, you don't want to be burning through a ton of cash. You want to look at profitability. And is there, you know, meat at the end of the, the, the end of the line left over when all of those costs are taken into consideration? You mentioned Netflix spending about $10 billion per year. Does it have a free cash flow profile that might make it more suitable for at some point? Or that, I know they're just burning through cash right now. Netflix has a market cap of $150 billion, I believe, and they're burning several billion dollars of free cash flow. It's a typical growth company in a pretty steep part of their growth curve. One can argue that we don't own Netflix and we have never owned Netflix. It doesn't mean we'll never own it, but we don't own it at the moment. One can argue that if Netflix stops growing as aggressively as it has and expanding globally, that at some and the retention rate of its customer, the churn stays at a relatively low level, that at some point it reaches enough scale to be able to start generating cash flow. But we're probably still a number of years away from that. In the meantime, we continue to own companies like Comcast or Fox or, or Charter that does that all of them generate very solid 
cash flow, they trade in at very reasonable multiples for reasons that we've discussed. But when you're not paying up for them, you know, your margin of safety is pretty high and balance sheets are it's generally in pretty good shape. And we like those companies. Quite frankly, just a lot more visibility into exactly. what they're going to be earning over the next five to 10 years. Right, right. And and I think that's, you know, people always talk about value versus growth. At the end of the day, you know, somebody cynically said that if you put high enough growth rate on any business, it looks like a value stock, right? But Correct. you have to have some level of confidence that that growth is going to materialize. So when we, uh, a large cap value, Bob and I look at companies to own, we look at the next three to five years and we want to make sure that we understand how, how predictable and stable that cash flow is. And to the extent that something comes up 10 years from now, it's an icing on a cake. We certainly don't have high level of confidence potentially in out of years cash flows, but generally, uh, you know, we don't want to pay for that. Let's talk a little bit about business models, right? There, there's a lot of distribution models that are out there that are changing. We're familiar with growth over the top delivery service versus traditional cable or satellite. We've talked a little bit about that, you know, named OTT. But within OTT, there's several business models. You have subscription video on demand. That would be something like a Netflix. Correct. You have transaction video on demand. What would be a, a transaction good... video on demand is really like like when I don't know you live in New Jersey, so you have. Comcast? As a, uh, I have a Verizon. Verizon, Fios. Okay, so I have Fios. So Fios runs commercials. You can rent or own that movie on demand. Okay. So it basically, you re- it's instead of going to the Blockbuster, this is how far back it goes. Okay. You basically have a transaction where you rent a movie or you rent a show or you buy a show through your pay TV distributor effectively. Okay, so subscription video on demand, which is like a Netflix, transaction video on demand, which is like a Fios running a movie on their platform, and then advertisement video on demand, which would be similar to maybe a, a YouTube? Well, YouTube is YouTube is actually you have to pay for YouTube live TV package of 70 or so channels that are bundled, the difference being as opposed to sending your check to Fios, Verizon, you send your check to Google as YouTube owner, and you pay $50, and then you still need to have broadband connectivity through either Fios or Comcast or Charter. So a ad-supported video package, OTT package, it's something that Comcast is actually talking about, potentially rolling out. What they're trying to do is they're saying, we have enough NBCU content, we have some Sky content that we acquired through ownership of Sky. We can package it together and and basically offer it free with some limited advertisements to existing universe of pay TV customers. Okay. And that's really, and that's what they experiment. And so if you think about sort of dichotomy of how various players in a traditional media approach in this, you have Disney on one extreme where they say, we have enough scale, we have enough content globally, we're gonna pull all of it in house, we're going to offer it as a standalone streaming package for $6. So the subscription video. Subscription on video. Okay. And then on the other extreme, you could say, I don't want to come across as negative. Spectrum. <laughs> other side of the spectrum, exactly, is Comcast who says, we're going to take baby steps. We're going to try to figure things out. And we can always adjust because nothing is cut in stone. We'll offer some package of content. Over time, we can adjust things accordingly, depending on what the perception or reception is at take rates off from consumer. And we're going to offer it to existing ecosystem as an add-on, something that customers would appreciate. And as the world migrates more towards 
sort of streaming. Millennials are more happy to watch things on their small, you know, laptops or MacBooks, whatever, as opposed to big TVs. It's something they could do. Do you think one model will win out versus the other? I think that as with most things in life, it's not one size fits all. It's going to be a variety of models and and varieties of a variety of packages. And you know, it's going to be it it's 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 going to be whoever you know different strokes for different folks. I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, you're seeing these smaller packages come out. I personally wouldn't mind cutting the cord if I can have a link to video. I, I'm sorry, sports, which is right. the ESPN Plus, right. You know, HBO Go, a couple of right. the, the, the channels that I really can't live without of. Right. But so it's interesting to see this. And you think this is going to continue to evolve over the next five or 10 years? It's going to continue to evolve over the next five years. Yeah. And it's interesting thing that if you, you can go through an exercise and say, okay, so I want ESPN, that's six bucks. I want HBO, that's 15 bucks. I want- Maybe Netflix. Maybe Netflix, that's another $11. I probably want some kids content if you have kids. So before you, uh, and then on top of that, you add uh, a broadband connection from your cable or a telephone company that you're probably going to end up premium for versus a bundle package. You may not necessarily save a heck of a lot of money, but you'll get it the way you want to get it. So I think one of the issues for consumer these days is that you have all this enormous amount of content. But you have to really look for it where you can buy it. So AMC, the original show, the current show, current episode might be on AMC, right? On your linear watch by appointment. The pre previous episodes are currently on Netflix, but maybe once that contract ends, they go back to AMC on demand. Yeah. So, it, and it all, it's all confusing. So I think there's a level of frustration from consumer standpoint. And that's, you know, that's why. So, so Comcast is saying, look, you love your content, we'll give it to you linearly or we'll give it to you through the OTT package. But it's going to take time to migrate because these contracts, the indication contracts for traditional sort of media companies, they go on, go on for, for a number of years before you can pull back your content. Well, I just want to kind of close out the podcast here with one of the names that you've had in the portfolio for, for quite a long time, Dish Network. They're a leading paid-by-TV provider. Obviously, it's a satellite provider. How does Dish fit into this whole picture? Just satellite TV provider. So to be fair, satellite is probably still the most efficient way of distributing TV, a traditional linear TV, because you basically launch a bird, you simulcast everything at once. You need a satellite antenna, which a lot of people can't have if you live in the city. It's an industry that's been undersold because they don't have a broadband connectivity, unlike cable, for example. So if you take a step back, and we've, we've you, you're right, we've owned Dish Network uh, as we have most of the stocks we've covered today for a very long period of time. Dish has two businesses, if you think about it. The traditional pay TV business, which is about 12 million customers, about 10, a little less than 10 of them are through satellite. Okay. And then Dish, uh, Charlie Ergen, who is the founder and, the CEO, uh, and chairman of the company, was the first one to roll out the OT, first OTT pack, one of the first OTT pa packages named Sling. Okay. So they have a technology to offer basically over-the-top video services. And unlike the YouTubes and the Sony Views of the world, which are selling a fat package over the internet, Sling was able to negotiate being part of Dish negotiate really slim down versions of over-the-top packages. So instead of, instead of paying $50 or $60, you can pay $25. 
and then you can incrementally add a little bit to to that. And there's uh, already two and a half million. They already have two and a half million. The growth in the OTT space in general has slowed down quite meaningfully f- across the board, and the reason being is that everybody from uh, you know Sling obviously knew that Directv, which is part of AT and T, has been very promotional with Directv now, and that's not a good strategy. And YouTube owned by Google, they are, I understand that the content costs are going up every year. You can't. You can only sell it for that that lawn at a loss, uh, thinking that you're going to monetize it, right? So that's not a sustainable model. So as your content costs, which is your input costs, go up, everybody's raising prices. So Sony View raised prices, YouTube has raised prices five to ten dollars. Sling has been able to keep it constant so far. But the reason the growth for the industry slowed down is because prices are going up. And just as we t- talked about a few minutes ago, when you start adding up numbers. You really, you may not be saving. You get in the content differently, but you may not be saving a lot of money as a consumer. But so that's the core business of Dish. They they have about 12 million customers. The the video side of the business, the satellite video side of the business, has been under pressure. They continue to generate EBITDA and free cash flow, but it's a business that probably, short of merging with Directv, which I think makes a ton of sense, if if AT and T decides to pick up the phone and come to some kind of terms, it's the business that's going to be in decline. And the question is, market usually gets the rate of decline wrong, and these businesses tend to have a little bit longer tail. And and Dish, to their credit, has fo- refocused the business on more rural areas where there's not as much competition and not as many alternatives. But the reason we're really uh, excited about Dish today is that the other side of the business, which is really an asset that doesn't generate any revenue or cash flow at this moment, and it's a portfolio of, of spectrum, uh, wireless, spec- wireless spectrum, that the company acquired over the years that has a book value of about $23 billion. It's about 100 megahertz of nationwide, mostly mid and low band spectrum that the company is building out in the first phase, and it has a tremendous potential, which the market doesn't believe in at this point. And this is going to be instrumental for the 5G build-out, I would imagine? That's exactly right. So if you think about all the excitement about 5G and the commercials that everybody runs from AT&T with their 4G LTE and Verizon, the ultra-wideband commercials and if you look at you know Korea which is in Japan which are the, at the forefront of the sort of new technological rollouts 5G in a in a true definition it's not only in, early on it's probably going to be evolutionary but i think in the long term it could be revolutionary it's going to be able to create products and services that we have not been dreaming about like low late you know low latency that's going to be needed for the internet of things driverless cars that's exactly, augmented reality all of that that's kind of exactly stuff. right and and the benefit that a newcomer can have is that you can build the network from scratch and design it so that it it's basically software defined network from day one without legacy of 2G, 3G, 4G, which is what the existing carriers have. You can improve your if network efficiency because you can effectively virtualize the network so that if Amazon wants to fly their drones and need dedicated capacity, you can give them a certain slice of the network in real time and that's gonna be their dedicated capacity as opposed to shared. Or if you want, you know, mobile eye 
for autonomous cars. If you build it out dense enough, you can do that. And so if you, networks are always built out for peak capacity. That means that when everybody's driving home during rush hour in the, in the, on the phones or on the train watching Game of fa- Thrones, your favorite Game of show, Game of Thrones, you got that. <laughs> you know me all too well, by the way. Absolutely. You, you, have, uh, you have peak capacity, but the rest of the time, your network might be utilized by you know, 20 or 30%. So if you get the network efficiency and you do it through software as opposed to hardware and you have enough chunky spectrum, you can have a material cost advantage. And that's what Charlie's trying to do. He's try- and, and it's a race, right? Because the FCC is breathing down neck, their neck to build it out so that uh, they keep the spectrum. Um, but we have high faith and high expectations for this company, notwithstanding all the uh, you know pain that uh, over t- over time uh, Charlie Ergen has caused us and other shareholders. He's taken a you know ten to thirty year view versus a you know three to five year view. Even you know long term investors like ourselves take. Yeah, it, it aligns very well with how we try to manage money. That's right. <clears throat> but I think we've come full circle here. We've talked about Game, Thron- Game of Thrones in the beginning, and we've come back to Game of Thrones. And that's all the time that we have here today, Dimitri. Thank you for joining me in the booth here. My My pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for joining the latest series for the ClearBridge podcast. And we hope to have you on for next month. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 12, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Thank you.